Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Hi everyone, this is part one of a two-part series on investing. In part one, we're going to cover investment options that you have, as well as risk, and then we'll be back later in the week for part two. Hey, Tara. Hi, Janine. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm really excited about today's episode. As you know, I love investing. Yeah, I'm so excited. And we've had so many questions over the past you know, couple of weeks in announcing the podcast around investing and people not knowing where to start that I think this episode will be probably long overdue by the time it goes live. Mm-hmm, for sure. Before we jump into you know, why it's so important to invest, I wanted to ask you maybe to share a little bit of your journey with investing and how you got interested and started. Oh, okay. So let's see. Um, I may have mentioned this before by this point, but my dad, when I was young, uh, got us started with GICs so that we would learn um, how to earn interest, how to get returns on your money, how to you know be financially savvy, that kind of thing. Um, when I was in university, I kind of just let that go. Didn't really think too much about it because I was studying. I was focused. As soon as I graduated, um, I, I started investing. I, you know, just started with a robo advisor, um, managed mutual funds, um, very close to the index, that kind of thing. But I didn't have a lot of knowledge at that, that point. I had no idea what any of these terms mean or meant rather. I just kind of knew where my risk tolerance was started with a little bit of money I said okay a hundred bucks I feel comfortable doing this with a hundred bucks that's like a very nice dinner out for um me and my boyfriend so I will invest this two or this hundred bucks came 200 I started up with an automatic uh contribution uh did great it wasn't until the first kind of downward trend where I took a step back I stopped investing. I got a little bit nervous, started learning more about it. And then my biggest regret is that I didn't put more money into the market at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think yeah. a lot of people were probably fairly spooked mm-hmm. when it comes to investing and the market kind of going down. But um, I think you know, getting that knowledge probably made it so that you had the ability to grow your wealth longer term. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now it's now it's great. And actually that that first fund that I invested in was like quite good. Now that I, I look back on it, it, it was great. Um, and I looked at the adjusted cost base and the gains on it not too long ago. And yeah, doing. Do really you still well. have it? I don't. I I moved it out, but I was tracking around like 13, 14%. I think I've shared this story before, but one of my friends lent me the book Automatic Millionaire when I was in university. They were taking a human ecology course at the U of A, and it talked about investing and like the notion of compound interest and growing your wealth and this seemed like this crazy thing to me and I think I did probably start with GICs as well a lot later than I guess you did my parents didn't really talk to me about investing more so just saving and so once I kind of got the hang of GICs I think 
I went into my financial institution and started looking at mutual funds. And I again, I really didn't have a great understanding of what they were, but I think I threw, you know, 100 bucks or 25 bucks into one of those funds and just kept adding to it and was, I guess, astonished by how quickly the value could increase on those. Yeah, yeah. And then it became a healthy obsession, I think. Awesome. Wonderful. Now, we've both shared our investing stories, and I wanted to give an example. I crunched a few numbers as to why investing is so important. One of the things that we have talked about previously is that women tend to earn less, therefore they can save less, and therefore ultimately investing less, so they have less money overall. Now, when you invest and you grow your wealth, what that means is ultimately you need to save less money because your money is starting to work for you. And when you look at an example, so I took $1,000. If you were to take $1,000 today and invest at a 6% return and contribute about $5,000 a year, which is about what it would be for um, a TFSA limit, and I think it ends up being $400 a month or $200 every paycheck, if you kept that money invested over 30 years, Basically, what you've contributed is $150,000 and you've earned $273 in interest on that investment. So you're looking at a total of $473,000 in something that started so small as $1,000. And really, it's showing you that you didn't have to earn and save that $273,000. It was kind of, in a sense, saved for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you made money off of it, for sure. Absolutely. And... I think that just paints a little bit of the picture to get started as to why investing is so important and why we want everyone to take investing seriously and really start to learn about investing and how to get started. So maybe, Tara, I'll ask you to share thoughts on the three kind of places you can invest your money. So the TFSA, the RSP, and the unregistered account. All of these are accounts you can open with a financial institution and hold investments in. So one thing that people get confused a lot around is the notion of like buying RSPs. And you can't actually buy an RSP. It's an account, so it's similar to a savings account. But within that account, you can actually hold different investments. So maybe you could share with us your thoughts on the three different types of investment accounts. Yeah, I think uh, my only thing, everybody should use their TFSA and max it out 100%. Whether or not you focus on your TFSA or RRSP first is based on your income and how much you need that tax deduction. Because if you're a student, probably not best, even if you have employment income, to work on maxing your RRSP. Um, Probably best to use your TFSA because when you retire, I would imagine you expect to be earning enough income off of your investments or pension that you're going to be paying more in tax when you retire than you are right now. So TFSA, everything earned in there is your tax shelter. Everybody should max that out um, or work towards maxing it out. RRSP, once you start earning good income, I don't know, $50,000 at least, um, or maybe even less, like once you're steady employed, start trying to max out your RRSP and use those deductions to your advantage. 
And I think one of the rules I kind of have for the RSP is once you hit that second tax bracket. So yeah. the first tax bracket, is, I think it's about 43000 right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, around that $50,000 mark is where you want to start looking at whether it's the RSP or the TFSA. or And maybe it's a combination of both. Yeah. And I think realistically, it should be a combination of both. Absolutely. And to jump back to both of those accounts, the TFSA has a contribution limit based mm-hmm. on how old you are and based on uh, the year that the limit, I guess, was increased. So if you were 18 as of 2009, you have the contribution room of $63,500, which means you have the ability in total to have contributed that much. But if you think about that, even within a couple, you get two of those, how much are you actually able to grow that money to Tara's point tax-free in the future? Mm -hmm. The, you know, CRA does not care you are not getting taxed on that that's wonderful except for one caveat that i'll mention if you're day trading within your tfsa you might want to be careful because the CRA is starting to look at that but i would not day trade in your tfsa don't yeah don't do that but please don't do that (laughs) but yeah your tfsa has a great contribution limit and if you're uncertain as to how much you're able to contribute because you turned 18 after 2009, you can easily look that up and add up the amount per year. Call Um, the CRA, look up on your MyCRA account. They should tell you every time you file taxes. Absolutely. And with your RSP, you have 18% of earned income is added to your contribution room every year. The difference between the TFSA and the RSP when it comes to contribution room is around the fact that if you pull money out of your TFSA, January 1 of next year, like of the next calendar year, you get that contribution room Mm -hmm. back. Whereas with the RSP, unless you're using like the home buyer's plan or the lifelong learning plan, Mm -hmm. you're not able to ever get that contribution room back. Yeah. And I mean, no, you can't get your contribution room back. And if you take that money out, it's going to be the taxes deducted at source. You're taxed on it at whatever your marginal income yet is. If there's any kind of money that you have in investments that you want to use, do not put that in your RSP unless it's for your house or you plan on using it for education. Yeah, don't touch your RSP. I would argue don't touch either of them, but I mean, circumstances. Well, I mean, what circumstances, right? It'd be good to have a little bit in each so that if you did come on hard times, you had your TFSA to pull from rather than your RSP. Totally. I guess one of the things that I think is crucial with the TFSA is long-term investing because the tax savings that you can have long-term, there's no reason that if you're able to max out your TFSA at $63,000 and you're a millennial that you shouldn't be able to have a million dollar TFSA by the time you retire. Well, we'll see what the economy does. But yeah, I sure. mean, of course, <laughs> but if, you know, it continues on the way, you know, the indexes have over the past 50 to 100 years, I see no reason that people couldn't have a, a million dollar TFSA as, as their retirement portfolio. And I think the TFSA is a great retirement vehicle. And I don't think a lot of people think of it like that. Yeah. And I think you're right in that sense. And I think too, um, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity that we have. We don't know how long we'll have it. It is a, it's something that the government has given to us. So take advantage of it while you can as much as you can. My prediction is that they will shut it down at $100,000. Like that will be your Mm. max lifetime. And Mm. that's my prediction. I don't know if it'll be right. I have nothing to base that off of, but I'm putting it on the record. Yeah. I like that. That, I mean, yeah, at some point they're going to cut us off. For sure. 
Now, the last type of account I wanted to just bring up quickly was the unregistered account. And we won't spend a ton of time talking about this. The only investments I would say that you would want to put in there if you don't have your other two accounts maxed out would be investments where you might think that they could be super high risk and you want to be able to deduct the losses on your tax return. Yeah. Um, and I am of the mindset that you, before you get into any kind of high risk investment, why wouldn't you have your RRSP and your TFSA already maxed out? Totally. Um, and then go to high risk and yeah, put it in your unregistered so you can claim the losses, carry it forward. Absolutely. So moving on to where to invest. So we've talked about a few of the different accounts, probably people that are listening to this podcast, focus on your TFSA and RSP. Um, I'm of the opinion that TFSA first, but again, you have to look at your income levels. There are a few different places you can actually look to make investments. The first being a financial advisor. And this is going to be different for everyone. And you're going to have to look at, you know, cost benefit, but you might want to consider hiring a financial planner, hiring someone who can buy and sell funds for you to do kind of that aspect of it. I've used a financial advisor in the past. I found that I was able to earn just as good, if not better returns than that individual. And so based on their fee, and we'll get into fees in a little bit, I didn't find that they were worth what um, they were charging. So I ended up you know, pulling my money from there and kind of going the self-directed route. Yeah, and I, I think for me, um, I've used advisors as well. And I think the key to finding a good advisor uh, is having someone who's going to call out your biases. There are a huge number, well, not a huge number, but there are a few biases that can affect your investment style. Um, you definitely want to have somebody who's able to call you out on that and help you to reach your goals. Uh, if you have somebody who's you're not going to be open with what their commission structure is, if you have somebody who's just going to look at you and say, oh, you're late 20s, early 30s, or early 20s, we're going to put you in this high-risk fund without listening to you, um, that's a problem. I think the financial advisor has a lot to offer in terms of your full financial picture, not just your retirement plan, um, but even how soon are you going to buy a house? What does your debt look like? What does your spending look like? Do you need to cut back a little bit and put more into your investments to ensure that you reach your goals? Could you start living a little bit better? Could you start drawing income earlier? This should be a lifelong, between you and your advisor, this should be a pretty much lifelong relationship and you should trust them as much as you would trust your partner. So if you're with somebody who doesn't want to tell you if it's front end loaded or back end loaded or where their management fees come in, then definitely don't go with that person. Um, but uh, I think there are a lot of good advisors out there and they can definitely uh, show that they're worth their fee for sure. Absolutely. And that is the, the key there is, are they worth what they're charging you? And mm -hmm. I think one thing I'll say is do not be afraid to fire your advisor. If they're using jargon yes. that you don't understand and they're talking down to you or, you know, whatever, you're not feeling comfortable with them. You can't be open and honest. It's not going to be beneficial for you in the long run. Yeah. Get a, get a new advisor. If you think you need an advisor, if you know, looking online is overwhelming you, definitely find a good one. Interview them. Go on as many first dates, for lack of a better comparison, with your advisor that you can. And, and make sure that they have your best interests at heart. They're meant to be working for you in your best interest, and they should be listening to you. Absolutely. So the second place that you can 
look to invest is actually with your financial institution. So whether you're with Tangerine or RBC or TD or Scotiabank or BMO, whatever, most of those financial institutions have a platform for investing. So mm-hmm. you may want to go make an appointment with your advisor and or whoever at the bank and ask kind of what their yeah. brokerage structure is like. Yeah, and definitely when you're speaking to that person, they can either be um, MFDA licensed under the MFDA's what is mutual that? funds. That just means that they can trade mutual funds, mutual funds only. If they are registered with IROC, they can do mutual funds, um, ETFs, single stocks. They can do a lot more. Not necessarily that it's going to be best for you and not necessarily to say that one is better than the other, but just realize that there are limitations and that might affect the kind of advice that they provide as well. But first and foremost, make sure you have someone who's working for your best interest. Absolutely. kind of goes back to the other point before, but I know a lot of people want to keep all of their money in one place. Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming to have too many logins. So do check out your um, brokerage with your financial institution and also ask if it's going to be kind of a self-directed situation, Mm -hmm. ask what their fees are because Mm -hmm. I've seen at a few of the financial institutions, the trading fees are actually quite high. So the next place that you can start to look at investing is using a robo-advisor and these have kind of come about... I guess more recently, the few mm-hmm. I'm familiar with in Canada here are Wealth Simple and Nest Wealth. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've seen any other ones, Tara. Uh, I guess my definition of robo advisor is a little bit more broad. Anything that you can kind of click the buttons, invest for yourself, I consider that to be robo advisor slash self directed. So if you're answering a quiz, it's a robo advisor in my book. Yeah, and I mean that was the last area that I wanted to touch on. My favorite self-directed site, and this is not sponsored, but is Questrade just because it is free to purchase ETFs and, you know, they charge you a fraction of a few dollars to sell them. Um, There's a lot of different online brokerages that you can look at. Again, I think really look at the trading fees. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I say trading fees, I don't mean management expense fees. I actually mean the physical fee to trade Mm -hmm. things. Um, But I think overall for probably most individuals these days a robo advisor or self-directed if you're willing to you know invest a few hours and learn what's going on i think that can be the best decision from a pricing standpoint if you don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of money and are kind of overwhelmed with getting started i about the robo advisor and the self-directed i worry that complex um Complex products are being sort of glossed over. Um, I worry about like a certain bias is that if you get involved in the in in the market and you experience a retraction or recession and you you lose in your account, not you know it's just a paper loss. It's not an actualized loss, but you lose. um, You can just withdraw everything and not get back into the market, which is likely um, a negative decision for most people, It's probably the wrong decision. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you do have to have a certain amount of confidence to go the robo-advisor or self-directed route. Either you can end up losing a lot in trading fees because you over-trade based on your portfolio size, or you can get involved with something that you don't fully understand, and therefore, even though it's the best option for you, you remove yourself from the market too quickly. Yeah, and I mean... We always want to keep a mindset that it's 
investing for the long term, you're probably not wanting to invest money that you're going to need in six months, right? This is when we're talking about investing for the long term, we are talking about, you know, things that are 10, 20, 30 years in the future. So when the market goes down, and I think that this is an area of anxiety for a lot of people our age, don't touch it. I always say like, the best thing you can probably do if you actually truly believe in a company or you truly believe in an index fund or an ETF is to purchase more because in a sense, it's like a Black Friday sale. Everything is everything is discounted. And I always tell people that if all of the stock markets tomorrow went to zero, like every single one of them, mm-hmm. as a society, we'd have a lot bigger problems than your $10,000 investment loss. And typically when I'm talking to people that are getting started investing, I do always say that creating a passive portfolio of index funds or mutual funds or whatever it is, is a great place to start. And once you kind of build that base and maybe investing is something you're really interested in, that's when you can go and start to maybe in a sense, play with a little bit of your money and look at some of those individual stocks. Exactly, yeah. So, and if we talk about the different um, places where you, the, the different types of products that you're able to invest in, um, we can look at what is the most risky versus what is the least risky in terms of uh, immediate losses. I mean, if you take more risk, you usually get more return. That's how it's set up. Not always the case, but that's how it's set up and what's been seen historically. And let's actually dive into that. So I have a few items on my list of things that we can buy within our TFSA or RSP or our unregistered account that are typical. And then I also, just for fun, wanted to mention a few that were a little bit more out there in terms of places that you can start to invest. So I really did want to start talking about individual stocks and then whether we're looking at ETFs or index funds that can hold bonds, and then kind of just ETFs and mutual funds from an equity perspective in general. Mm-hmm. Cool. So when it comes to stocks, I think, as Tara mentioned, these are the most risky investments you can make. And I always compare it to kind of putting all your eggs in one basket. So if you took all of your wealth and dumped it in like one Apple share or, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 Apple shares, or I don't even know what it's trading at, but that's very risky if Apple was to go bankrupt tomorrow. So when we Mm -hmm. talk about diversification, we want to make sure that we are invested in many different types of companies. And you can do that through purchasing multiple different types of individual stocks if you want. That is, however, typically more expensive because of the trading fees. Yeah. And you have to have a huge amount of money to get a diversified portfolio if you want to start buying individual stocks. I mean, you could, but um, I think it would take a lot of time and money to be able to get the percentages that you want to see. And that's almost one myth in a sense I want to bust is that, you know, over the past decade and a bit, there have been so many more financial products available for younger people to invest in. Because I think you know, back in the day, you couldn't start to create an investment portfolio unless you had hundreds of thousands of dollars because you could really only purchase stocks. There was no such thing as ETFs, right? Well, you know what? Fun fact. ETFs have been around a lot longer than most people think. It's just before they were only available to things like 
pension funds and large, large, large institutional traders like that, which is really interesting. And when I say like back in the day, I'm probably talking about like 1940, so before the internet was around. Owning a stock is owning a piece of ownership in a specific company. So if you Mm -hmm. owned a share in Coca-Cola, you would actually be considered a very small percentage of an owner in that company. And so that's what we want to think about when we're talking about stocks. And as Sarah mentioned, the fees associated with stocks buying and selling can be quite high. I think Mm -hmm. at a discount brokerage, you're looking at about $5 per trade. Whereas Mm -hmm. with some other financial institutions, you might be looking up to $20 per trade, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, and which is huge depending on how many shares you're you're buying. Well, exactly. Um, if you're selling four shares that are each mm-hmm. worth $20 and you're paying $20 in fees, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and if you in I mean that that I think buying single stocks involves a lot more time and energy than the average or especially new investor um, should waste time considering because I think initially when you're making your first move you should just be looking at what you want to see what's the lowest cost way to get a diversified plan in place totally and on that note let's talk about ETFs and mutual funds and index funds because they all kind of fall into the same category yeah Mm -hmm. so what Do you want to walk through what some of these different funds are maybe for our listeners in case some people haven't ever heard of what an ETF is or an index fund is? Sure. So um, ETFs and index funds, uh, those are going to very likely be passively managed. Um, So basically what you're trying to look at is match the return of a market overall. Um, So if you look at the TSX, you see over the last year, let's say it's gone up 5%, you would imagine that your index fund or ETF that's meant to match the the TSX will be 5%. Um, I've heard they're they're doing different things in terms of getting like uh, global index funds, and so you're matching certain percentages of different indices, that kind of thing. Uh, Great. I I love them. Um, and I'll just jump in that typically they have the lowest fees. Typically, ha- they have the lowest fees. Uh, index funds are going to have a little bit more than the ETF. Um, a really great uh, low-cost option. There are a ton of them now to wade through, though. For sure. And I think that's where it starts to get tricky because there can be ETFs that, you know, are for oil and gas. There can be an ETF for people that want to invest in clean energy. There can be ETFs for companies that have female CEOs. There can be literally any combination of an ETF that you're looking for. I think there can be a lot of ETFs that are kind of just noise as opposed Mm -hmm. to there are some, there are some great ETFs and I think we'll share some resources on our newsletter but uh, the Canadian Couch Potato is a great place to start in terms of they give you like three well-diversified ETFs to focus on and kind of avoid all of those like extra ETFs that are just for fun. Yeah, uh, there's just there's just a lot to wade through now, definitely, definitely. And the last one is a mutual fund, which is kind of a more actively managed fund. And when we talk about funds, I guess the analogy I tend to use is if you were to make a pie that had multiple different types of berries in it, 
each of those berries could be a share in a company. So one share of Coca-Cola, one share of Johnson and Johnson, and they all kind of get put into this pot or this pie. And then investors can buy pieces of this pie and get, you know, a sliver of that Coca-Cola share or a sliver of that uh, Johnson and Johnson share. So that's how investors are able to kind of have more of a well-diversified approach without the incredible fees that it would take from a stock portfolio. Yeah. So that's, um, that's kind of how the, the ETF and the mutual fund are both structured in that it's, um, the, the mutual fund might be a manager who's um, benchmarking on something completely different, like benchmarking the industry, benchmarking an indice, and that's more like what they're trying to beat. So rather than the ETF that's, um, or, or index fund, indexed anything, where they're just trying to replicate the exact market, um, the mutual fund, if it's actively managed, will be trying to pick the maybe the best companies or um, the best bonds, uh, that kind of thing from that benchmark um, and trying to get a little bit more take advantage of, of something to, to get a better return. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening so far. The episode's getting a bit long, so we're going to take a pause and come back with part two. In part two, we're going to cover investment fees, higher risk investments, and the gendered side of investing. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances. 